But first, let's talk about this one, and it is Air Canada coming out on top of a list, or should I say at the bottom of a list. You see, a new report says Air Canada had the worst on-time performance among the large airlines in North America for last year. Aviation data from Sirium says the country's big carrier landed 63% of its flights on time this year. The other way of looking at it, 37% were not on time. That's over a third. That's placing it among the continent's 10 big airlines. By the way, the score was five percentage points below second and third worst. Those are American airlines. Not American Airlines, but airlines based in the States, meaning JetBlue Airways and Frontier Airlines. They were number two worst, number three worst. By the way, WestJet, not all that great either. It's seven from the bottom. So what's going on here? There are a bunch of excuses or reasons, depending upon how you look at it, offered by the airline. But let's bring in uh, Taylor Backrack, who is the NDP transportation critic and MP for Skeena Bulkley Valley. Taylor, Happy New Year to you, and thanks for joining us. Happy New Year, Bruce. Good to be with you. You know, when it comes to uh, our trust in Canadian airlines, there are many challenges, and we've talked about quite a few of them here. But on time or late, when you're talking more than a third of the flights are not, and it's not just arriving on time, uh, for you departing. It's also the arrivals. It's both ends. Uh, this has got to be disappointing, eh? Well, it is for sure. And I think anyone who's flown uh, with Air Canada in the past year w- wouldn't be surprised to hear that statistic. Um, I-, I flew a-, a ton in 2023. And certainly over the past six months, a lot of the flights I was on were, were late. Um, and that's, you know, it's a it's a result of a number of different factors. I, I'm not sure what Air Canada is saying in terms of the reason behind it. But I think coming out of the pandemic, one of the things we were seeing is that uh, there's a lot of demand to travel. And Air Canada was trying to meet that demand without enough capacity to really provide the kind of resilience that um, would allow them to have a higher on-time performance. And the result is that passengers end up picking up the slack they're the ones that, that aren't able to get to their destination on time and sometimes miss connections or worse. So uh, obviously this is a situation that has to is that stronger air passenger protection get there. Well, Air Canada's CEO, Michael Russo, did come out and uh, offered some reasons for this. And here are some of the ones that he pointed out. Uh, a shortage of air traffic controllers, blaming the federal government, bad weather, blaming Mother Nature, and a network running at full tilt with high demand. Now, I look at those and I think, yeah, okay, that's no different than most other North American airlines. But that's what he says is the cause behind this. Do you buy it? Well, it does beg the question why other airlines are able to uh, provide better uh, a better service. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily buy those excuses. I think those are definitely factors. Um, but the reality is, is that there is a pilot shortage. Uh, Air Canada only has so many airplanes. And essentially, uh, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners uh, have received one of those notifications on their phone saying, you know, your flight is delayed because the airplane, the incoming airplane from another destination hasn't arrived yet. Or we're still waiting for crew to get to the airport to, to uh, crew the plane. Um, it, that indicates to me that they're running a, a really 
like they're, they're running a system without very much resilience in it for unexpected occurrences. And the result is that passengers end up picking up the slack. So I, I think there are things that the airline can do to improve that performance. Uh, one of the things that would really motivate them to improve the performance is if the federal government was making them compensate passengers when their flights were delayed beyond a certain point. I think that would really you know, provide the financial incentive to make the decisions necessary to ensure that their planes are on time. We're talking with Taylor Backrack, NDP transport critic and MP for Skeena Bulkley Valley, with this new report that's out that shows Air Canada at the bottom of the list or the worst performer when it comes to being on time of the big North American airlines. Now, Taylor, you did mention penalties and compensation, more compensation for passengers, but we've already seen that. We've already seen compensation in other areas. The airlines uh, must be getting very sick and tired of compensating passengers. Well, you know, we've talked about this before when it comes to uh, air passenger rights and, and our desire in the NDP to see a much stronger regime than the ones that the Liberals have put in place. We want to see compensation be automatic and not put the onus on passengers to navigate a really complex bureaucratic system in order to get the money that they're due. Now, right now, there's over, at the end of October, there was over 60,000 complaints at the CTA. So these are passengers that have experienced delays or cancellations and have gone through that bureaucratic process in order to try to get compensation. Um, What Air Canada is doing right now is reaching out to passengers and offering them a few hundred dollars in order to to settle the complaint uh, preemptively. Um, and they're doing that because if those complaints go through the CTA, they stand to, to pay out thousands of dollars, and they're trying to save money on the complaint process. Um, so if we had a stronger system that really had the backs of passengers, I think that would be a, a huge financial incentive for Air Canada to provide the kind of service that doesn't result in complaints, that uh, ensures that passengers get to their destination on time, and, and they can do that by you know, ensuring they have enough capacity in the system to deliver the product they're selling people. I understand what you're saying, and I think a lot of people would agree, but let's take a look at this list again when it comes to things like bad weather. That one certainly is out of the control of the airline. So if you had one of those blanket things where if uh, an airline is late due to a storm, would you still include that in the list of reasons to compensate passengers? Well, there are some things that are entirely beyond the airline's control, and no one is suggesting that those kinds of factors um, should be the responsibility of the airline. Major storms, uh, the kind of thing that we saw last Christmas during the travel season uh, when a lot of airlines and airports were were severely challenged by the weather. Um, But a lot of these uh, delays and cancellations are the result of operational decisions that that could be planned for. There could be more... um, more capacity in the system to account for contingencies and that would allow them to have better on-time performance and what it seems like we're seeing and Air Canada is doing very well financially now coming out of the pandemic they're they're making money again and, and doing quite well but it seems like what we're seeing is the prioritization of of those profits over the experience of passengers and as a result we see them uh you know ranking near the bottom in terms of of overall performance. So, um, yeah, I imagine the airline is taking this very seriously, and uh, and hopefully we see some improvement in 2024. 
And if we don't, who knows? So, Taylor, what are we doing, you doing, the NDP doing, you as a transport critic, to lean into this and to get something done? Well, I brought forward a private member's bill after consulting with air passenger rights advocates. And we wanted to see a, a really strong air passenger rights system that would make compensation the norm rather than the exception. Um, the Liberals, unfortunately, didn't choose to take us up on our, our proposal. And they've brought in a, a system that hasn't totally come into effect yet. Uh, so we will see once those regulations really start to, to hit the ground, uh, we will see whether um, the new regulations are effective at, at providing that incentive for airlines like Air Canada. And certainly not only Air Canada, every airline um, can benefit from better customer service and better on-time performance. Uh, we'll see if that starts to make uh, any difference whatsoever. Um, part of that is also a different uh, complaint process, slightly modified process that hopefully will get passengers more money. You know, I take a look at issues like this. It may not be number one on the agenda for the NDP, but it is one of the issues that comes up for Canadians. A lot of Canadians right now are looking to your party for kind of support and not necessarily going along with the Liberals on things that uh, you may have agreed to in the past. Are you going to use this at a time when the Liberals need more support than ever from the NDP to push some of these tier two or tier three issues? Well, our job as an opposition party is to hold the government accountable and not only to, um, you know, highlight when their policies fall short, but also to propose solutions. And that's certainly something uh, I'm going to be doing as transport credit going into 2024. Um, There are a lot of, you know, really, Bruce, this comes down to something pretty basic, right, which is consumer rights. When you buy a product or a service from a company, Uh, you have um, really the company has a responsibility to deliver that service. And what we've seen over the past couple of years in in the airline sector is a lot of Canadians um, left holding the bag uh, because of decisions made by the big airlines. So we're going to keep defending air passengers. Uh, We're going to be working with air passenger advocates and pushing the government to make sure that um, the government does its role and, and fulfills its responsibility in, in standing up for passengers. Well, Canadians left holding the bag. That's quite literal in this case. Taylor, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. And again, Happy New Year to you. Same to you, Bruce. Always good to talk. Yeah, it's Bruce in for Jazz 2024. It's going to be the year that the finances get under control, so to speak. Are you starting off the new year with a commitment to get a financial planner or work out your finances, develop some sort of ideas to make it so much better than it was the year before? Let's bring in Peter Sushaki, registered financial planner and president of Everything Financial Group. Peter, great to talk to you again. Uh, first time for this year, 2024. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Bruce. Uh, it's Let's hope this is a much better year financially uh, than last year, and it's already shaping up like you could look that way with interest rates on the decline, hopefully sooner rather than later, because that would make everybody happy. Well, yes, indeed. And last year was a challenging year on so many fronts for, for right across the board for almost everybody. But one thing that you say, and I like this when it comes to a financial plan, is your lifestyle won't change but your life will. 
Tell me about that. Yeah, that's one of the most important things for a financial plan is things that allow you to continue living the way you're living, but it's like you're changing the pieces on the chessboard. So you get to still do the things you get to do. A holiday should be built into your financial plan. Um, time away, the odd weekend with your kids or your spouse, doing those things you know, around the lower mainland, whatever the case may be, that should be part of your financial plan. When you're sitting across from... And sometimes I use that term loosely, and it's all about don't spend, don't spend, don't do this, give us your money, give us your money, give us your money. Look for someone else because a financial plan should put you and your well of your family first and your lifestyle, not make you regret the plan. Because it's people think a financial plan, or some people think this, is all about retirement. Well, no, it's plan for tomorrow, live for today. That's what a plan should be about. So your lifestyle needs to stay the same, but the end result will be much better. Before we even get into the nuts and bolts of this, Peter, I think it's really an important message that you're getting at here. And when we think about our finances, uh, we do have to think about ourselves. And quite often, if we're into some challenges, maybe we've messed up a bit in the past year, we think we don't deserve the life we have. We don't deserve those things we've had in the past. You're saying quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. If you work hard, yeah, there's going to be mistakes made sometimes and you might spend something wrong. But sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes you're being led down the path of sales, sales, sales. And a financial plan, this is definitely the way it shouldn't start, should not start with a rate of return. And we've said this, you, me, and Jack everyone else I've done this segment with. It should start with saving on taxes, reduction in fees, and paying yourself first. A goal of a financial plan should not be when do you want to retire. Quite the opposite. That might be an end result in the plan, but the goal should be what do you want to accomplish in the next six months to two years? What is in the short term for you and your family, and how are we going to achieve that? So a financial plan has to be your best interest first, your family's well-being, not who's getting paid a commission. So how do you go about doing that? What are the first steps when you sit down, pen and paper, questions, and uh, start working out some actions, like an action plan? How do you go about doing it? Great question. The first thing you should be asked in doing a financial plan, or you should even do yourself, really, and it's not the B word as in budget, because I hate that word, because no one can tell you what to spend your money on and how to spend it. It should be cash flow. You should figure out how you're spending your money, what you're spending your money on, and how much you need, not want, what are the needs you have to spend money on just to maintain a nice, comfortable, not obsessive, but comfortable lifestyle for you and your family, and from getting an accurate cash flow picture, then you can figure out where do we go next on what is left over, what is disposable to spend on, or are some of those cash flow needs, once you look at them and you go, oh yeah, I thought they were need, but those are more of a want, and those are the things I can cut out to have more disposable income, something else. So as I say in a, in a real financial 
happen from a registered financial planner. You will spend the same amount of money, Bruce. You're just going to spend it differently. If you reduce fees, you reduce taxes, and you get out some of the unnecessary frivolous things and you substitute those with true needs, you're spending the same amount of money, but you're spending it better and you're making it way more productive to go further and then you don't regret the setting up of a financial plan. You know, Peter, it's interesting you say that, and I'm often reminded how polite we are as Canadians, that sometimes we forget asking questions like, this happened to be in the last year, opened up a brand new bank account for reasons of a new mortgage. Uh, And I looked at a fee that was associated with that bank account, and I asked if that was the best they could do. Turns out, no, they could do better. But I wonder how many of these decisions just never really come to fruition because people don't ask about things. Well, it's funny you said mortgage, and we weren't even, I wasn't thinking about that today. But the one problem with mortgages in this country is, and there's fees, and that's fair enough, and people deserve their commissions. They work hard and trying to get you the best mortgage, the best deal. The problem is, you don't know if you're getting the best item because, unfortunately, all the associated fees and, and the commissions paid aren't disclosed till the end. And then it's too late because you got to close within two days in the house and you know all that stuff. Why don't you start taking matters into your own hands and ask all those questions at the beginning? What are you getting paid? What am I getting for my money? And we did a, me and Jazz a few months ago, and we called it fee for no service. If, if the advisor is getting paid a fee and we don't begrudge them the fee, but what are you getting for the fee? They shouldn't be paid a fee just to say, hey, go buy mutual fund X from ABC company. You don't need to pay someone to do that. You can do that on your own. What do you get? What do you get from them from what they get paid? You go get a will. You know it's going to cost you money, but you know what you're getting from the notary or the lawyer if you're paying your, let's just call it 750 bucks. That's not an accurate figure, but just example for today. You know you're getting a will and it's registered, et cetera, and it's written up properly for your 750 or your 1000 or whatever it is. But when it comes to financial planning and you're buying some products, you need to know what you're getting for your money before you put pen to paper. I'm going to have a plan. What's the end result look like? All this should be disclosed at the beginning, not at the end when it's too late. Peter, over the course of 2024, we'll talk so many times again about this. But if there is one take back from what we've talked about today, I hope it is that asking of that question more often than not. You bet, Bruce. It's your money. It's your right to ask, and people just remember that, and we call this segment Your Money for a reason, because it's yours. You work hard for it. You deserve the right to know what you're getting for your money. Thanks so much, Peter. You bet, Bruce. Take care. Yeah, thanks for spending this Tuesday afternoon with us. Tuesday, January the 2nd, 2024. Happy New Year. You know, last hour, we're talking about finances and getting them under control with a bit of a plan. And one of the things that obviously comes up with that is a look at the money coming in. And if you're like many of us, it has been a challenge over the past year. Many of us got a bit of a pay raise, some not so much. But then there is a group of Canadians who seem to get healthy pay increases year after year after year. And I'm not talking about you and me, I'm talking about those possibly at the highest levels of pay in the country. You see, the country's 100 highest paid CEOs 
broke records with their compensation, according to the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. It says the CEOs, most of them, by the way, are men, were paid an average of $14.9 million, 15 million bucks. And that's up from an average of $14.3 million in the year before. Begs the obvious question, what's going on here? Well, let's bring in David McDonald, the CCPA senior economist and an author. And let's get to the bottom of this, David. Happy New Year, of course. But what's going on? Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. Um, You know, this is a story about inflation, interestingly. Um, We have to start with CEOs and how they are paid in Canada. Um, the salary that they get is a very unimportant part of their total pay package and makes up only 8% of their pay. 84% of their pay on average comes from uh, what's called the performance-based compensation or bonuses. And so it's the bonuses really that's driving ever higher CEO pay packages and certainly what drove them to new all-time highs in 2021 and 2022. Now, how is this related to inflation? Well, Inflation uh, drove corporate profits way above historic norms. It was, it's been a great time in corporate Canada. Uh, inflation, which is prices being higher, is pretty bad news for consumers. But for the folks charging those prices, big corporations, it's been great. And so corporate profits go through the roof. The bonuses for CEOs are based on company performance writ large, and so uh, revenue, profits, profit margins, and so on. And so as you see record high profit margins, that translates into record high bonuses, and that's one of the big reasons why we're seeing these uh, record-breaking amounts, uh, almost $15 million in uh, the 2022 data set. And it's not just the pay. It's easy to take a look at the pay or or the total bonus uh, package and the pay all wrapped up into one. But uh, the increase still, even if it is because of market conditions or profits or how well a company did, it's still a lot more than many of the employees are getting. And that at times has people saying, why? And is it fair? What, what, uh, What do you say about that? Yeah, I mean, it's not a bit more. It's a, it's a lot more. I mean, these CEOs on average are making uh, just over $7,000 an hour, um, you know, a fair amount more than minimum wage, which means that um, by 927 this morning, uh, January 2nd, these richest CEOs had already uh, collected just over $60,000, which is what the average worker can expect to make all year. So, you know, it just after the day started at nine, they already make your average salary. Um, that's that's a time-based representation of the ratio of CEO to average worker pay. So this year, the CEOs hit a new all-time record, uh, 246 times what the average worker makes. Uh, and that ratio has been going up. It's gone up quite substantially uh, over the past several decades. When we started looking at this in 2008, uh, instead of being about 250 times, it was about 150 times uh, CEOs compared to average workers. In the 1990s, CEOs were making about 100 times the average worker. And in the 80s, they were making about 50 times. 50 times uh, what somebody else makes is still a lot more. Uh, it's not a minor amount. Uh, it's still a lot more. Um, but those ratios have changed a lot over time. And that, more than anything else, is what should be concerning to us, which is that uh, this gap has really opened up 
between what the CEOs make and what the average worker makes. It's not really that concerning that CEOs make more than the average worker. That's always been the case. Uh, it's more so that the gap is growing and that we overestimate the importance of CEOs to our economy. But at the same time, we underestimate the, uh, the value of workers to our economy. Well, is it because uh, the CEOs today are brighter than they ever were before? It's because of bonuses. I mean, this is actually what's driving it. What's interesting is that the salaries line for CEOs has remained relatively constant at, at about a million dollars. Interestingly, if you took the average worker pay uh, and and multiplied it by 50 times, which was kind of the ratio that we saw in the 1980s, that would be just over a million dollars. Uh, and that's that's what this, you know, that's still where CEO salaries are. What's really changed and what's really driving this gap is the bonus structure. Um, bonuses in good times go through the roof. And so 2021, 2022, bad times for consumers because they were facing these price changes, but great time for companies in terms of corporate profits. But we don't really interesting on. I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but I, I just want to get to, because I can't let this go. We don't see the pay going down when a company starts to falter or hit some really bad times. Not for CEOs. Yeah, that's what that's what 2020 really showed us. Uh, the pandemic was bad for corporate profits, huge drops in corporate profits, particularly in the first and second quarters. And this is where we see how bonuses work in the real world. Uh, you know, the pitch is that if the company does badly, the CEO gets paid nothing, right? Um, so the CEO gets no salary, but all their money's on the line, hypothetically. It turns out in the real world, what actually happens when corporate profits go down is you change the formula after the fact to ensure that the pay uh, and the bonuses of those CEOs don't go down. And so in our 2020 version of this report, where we looked at this in great detail, uh, half of the CEOs on our top 100 list either changed their bonus formulas after the fact to make sure that they still got their bonuses despite terrible performance, or they got a bailout from the feds, or they did both. And so this really speaks to one of the big reasons why bonuses keep going through the roof is that they only ever really go up uh, in good times, but they don't go down. Um, and there are several periods uh, over the period, we, you know, over the time period we've been tracking it where corporate profits legitimately went down. And so you would expect the EO pay would go down as well, because that's what the bonuses are nominally tied to. And it didn't. Uh, the CEOs are insulated from the downside. I once put this same question to someone who was a CEO, and he said the reason for this, and I don't know if you buy this argument, David, I don't know if I buy the argument, but he said the reason why it's obvious uh, you pay more money when times are good, but when a company starts to falter, you don't reduce the pay, that's when you really need a great CEO that's bright and you need somebody in there to navigate through the rough waters. That's why you pay yeah. them more. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, and the point here is it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if times are good. It doesn't matter if times are bad. It doesn't matter if your CEO is a good CEO or not a good CEO. This looks like merit-based pay, but it's actually power-based pay. Uh, it's not based on merit. It's based on power. Uh, it's based on the ability of corporate culture in Canada to control the levers of how they are paid in such a way that that pay continues to always go up. Um, that's not exclusively a problem in Canada, something that uh, we're seeing around the world. I mean, that the pay is actually a bit more extreme in the U.S. Um, but this is about this is about corporate culture uh, that wouldn't have been acceptable in the 70s and 80s if you paid yourself more than 50 times what the average 
or her maid, uh, that, that would be unacceptable. Whereas today, it's extremely acceptable. Um, one of the interesting features of having uh, these mandatory disclosures of pay, that's the only reason why we know this, is a force to disclose this through, the, through uh, rules for publicly traded companies. Um, then they, they, we get to see it, but they also get to benchmark against it. And so CEOs will say, you know, I should be paid in the top 25% of CEOs. Well, somebody has to be in that bottom 75%. Otherwise, pay levels just keep going up. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that is happening in the corporate world. These pay levels just keep going up. Bruce Plankett in for jazz this week. What's a good wage? Maybe 20 bucks an hour, 50 bucks an hour, maybe 400, 500 bucks an hour for some professionals like lawyers. How about uh, $7,162 an hour? That is the average pay for the top 100 CEOs in this country. We've been talking about the latest report put forward by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and senior economist David McDonald. He is our guest and we're talking about why this is the case. David, thanks for sticking around with us. Uh, One thing, and it's just an observation on my part, is over the past few years, I think, organized labour, big labour. They hate when I call it big labour. But big labour has been... uh, taking a look at some of the CEO pay and often pointing it out when it comes to negotiations for rank and file workers. So there is a spotlight being shone on this a little bit, but is it all for naught? Is it not having any impact? Um, I mean, interestingly, there has been movement on this file. Uh, So there, you know, one of the big pushes I think for these, broad cultural changes in corporate Canada towards these extreme pay packages has been to uh, not regulate it necessarily directly, but change the tax rules around it. So if you want to pay your CEO these extreme amounts, that's fine, except you're going to owe a lot more in taxes. Um, that's only the approach that, that I have taken instead of regulating and saying, look, the CEO can only get paid whatever, $955,000. Um, and there's been some important movement there, actually. So in uh, 2021, in July, the stock option deduction, which is a special loophole uh, used for people that get paid in stock options, which is a pretty small group, uh, certainly CEOs and big executives, but there aren't a lot of people who are paid in stock options instead of in money. Uh, in any event, it was capped at $200,000. It used to be that you'd get a, this half-off coupon on your taxes uh, for stock options uh, and, their, and, and, and their capital gains. Um, but that is, uh, you know, it's now been capped at, at $200,000. Um, there's certainly more that we could do on that front. Uh, we could eliminate the stock option deduction altogether. I mean, 200000 would still be considered an extremely good salary for Canadians, not just in stock options, but just in general. Um, these CEOs will also substantially benefit from things like the capital gains inclusion rate. Um, the companies that pay these extreme pay packages get to write, up, write off the extreme pay packages uh, on their taxes. And just more broadly, too, tax rates on uh, rich Canadians used to be much higher. The top marginal brackets used to be much higher in the post-war years where they stood at 70 to 80 percent, depending on the year. Uh, they're now in the 55% range for big provinces like Ontario and Quebec. And so these are ways that you can pare back this extreme inequality and use the proceeds for something more useful, like trying to build our rebuild our health care system or support low-income Canadians in the affordability crisis. David, believe it or not, I don't have a lot of friends who are CEOs that made the list, but I do know a couple. And 
the one thing that you put to them, and the ones I know are in the telecom sector, the one thing you put to them when it comes to compensation is, uh, what about that pay? I mean, how come it's so high? And they'll say, yeah, but who has the expertise worldwide that would come into this company to take on the challenges that we have? Bruce, we're in an international market and we're in a market where we have to get the best and the brightest to navigate the challenges. We have to be a global player. So that means $15 million a year. Do you buy it? Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely the argument. CEOs think they're in a hockey draft. They think that all the CEOs go to a big ballroom at the start of the year and all the companies go and they bid on their best players. And if you don't get a good player, uh, you know, your company fails the next year. Uh that's not actually how CEOs are fired in Canada, interestingly. I mean, I've heard this argument many times, and so I looked a couple of years ago. Uh, 75% of the top CEOs were hired internally, and on average, they've been in their job for 18 years. These are This isn't a hockey draft. It's company men. Uh, they are working their way up the ranks. They end up in the top chair, but they end up in the top chair because they know the company, because they've worked there for a long time, and they know the industry. Um, you know, one of the CEOs in our list mines uranium in Kazakhstan, and a different one runs a grocery store chain. Even if one CEO was really good at mining uranium in Kazakhstan, they would probably be pretty bad at running a grocery store chain. Uh, and so we pay CEOs as if it's a hockey draft, but that's not actually how they're hired. They're hired as company men working their way up the chain. They don't require this type of extreme pay based on hockey draft competition, because that's not actually how they're hired. Ah, great way of uh, putting it. David, I've enjoyed our talk and it's an interesting one. By the way, if you have a chance, I would highly recommend taking a look at this report. Canada's 100 highest paid CEOs breaking new compensation records. David McDonald is the CCPA senior economist. He's also the author of Canada's New Gilded Age CEO pay in 2022. David, thanks for uh, being with us. And I encourage people to take a look at some of his writings. Thanks so much for having me. It is that time of the year where if you go to Google and type in BC Assessment, you come to the BC Assessment page and the assessments that were made for properties or homes back in the summer of last year. That is the latest value or price as per assessment that is available to you. And it's always good to kind of compare that to years in the past. And also it's the time of year, of course, where we take a look at some of the highest priced property around the province. Oh, some of those homes like Chip Wilson's $82 million home over on uh, Point Grey Road in Vancouver. Yeah, that's gone up, by the way, 10% this year. Not everyone went up in uh, in value. Uh, some areas saw price increases. Some saw some prices go down. It was an interesting year in real estate, one that was hard to predict what was going to happen. And by the way, assessments are only the assessed value, not the actual price you're going to get anytime you go into a sale. Uh, quite often, that's a lot higher. Sometimes it's even lower. But to make sense of all of this, let's bring in Steve Soretsky, realtor and founder of the Soretsky Group. Happy New Year, Steve. Yeah, thanks for having me on. What do you make of this year's assessments? What's the big take back for you? Uh, it's kind of in line with 
more or less what I would have expected. I think that uh, for the most part, they're fairly accurate. I think, you know, they're saying plus or minus 5%. And I think that's, for the most part, if you look at July 2022 compared to July 2023, I think that's kind of the, the right take, more or less. But I think, I think uh, as you mentioned there earlier, it, you know, assessment value should definitely be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, traditionally, I've always said this to my wife uh, when we take a look at our property, which has gone up in 15 years every year, except for three different years where it actually stayed the same or went down. Because, of course, we bought in 2008 at the height of the market. But that's a whole other story. But we take a look at it and I say, yeah, that's just the assessed value. Probably we would list this, this a whole lot higher. And that traditionally is the case. But it's not always the case, is it? Yeah, no, definitely not. I think that, like, they're a pretty good reference point. Um, you know, I think that most homeowners, obviously, you know, if you're you're moving once every eight or nine years, you're probably not fully dialed into what's happening with the housing market on a month-to-month basis, right? So I think most people just look at their assessment value and say, okay, this is a good reference point to start here. This is a general idea of my my housing equity or net worth. Um, you know, it's most people's largest asset. So I think it's kind of fun or entertaining for a lot of people to look at that number, but I really don't think it's a good number to use when you're actually going to the market to actually sell. You know, 2023 was such a bizarre year because for the first time in many, many years, we started to see interest rates really go up. And a lot of discussions centered on the fact that we might see real estate going down in value. And certainly it did in many cases. But overall, it didn't in this assessment. Is it just a matter of timing? What's going on here? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it really just comes down like the volatility in the markets right now. Like, you know, the, the housing market across pretty much every housing market across BC peaked in February of 2022, right? And since then, you saw some some product come off 5%. We saw other drastic things come off 20%. Uh, and it really was really slow into the end of 2022. And then we had a bit of an uptick into 2023. You know, a lot of markets recovered some of that price drops. And then when we saw, you know, the housing market started to kind of roll back over again uh, in the fall of this year as mortgage rates pushed up, right? I mean, basically the housing market right now is pretty much, is very, is falling mortgage rates. It's very sensitive to mortgage rates right now, right? I mean, we saw the, the uptick this spring was because mortgage rates, fell back down into the high fours and then it's been cooling off again here in the fall into the winter uh, as mortgage rates push back up into the sixes right and so um, I think really right now is it's a housing market that is just moving with whatever interest rates are doing. Steve there are two different ways we can take a look at uh, the housing market we could take a look by type of housing or we could take a look by region. Let's start with the second one first. What regions saw the highest increase and what region saw some of the biggest challenges or some of the biggest dips? Yeah, I mean, I think for for BC uh, assessments purposes, you know, they've got, uh, I think, Coquitlam with the largest increase around 4%. I mean, again, I would take that with a grain of salt. I think, you know, the, the broad stroke here is basically um, the, the markets that have taken the biggest hit um, in in if you're actually going to go and put your house in the market is anything out in the suburbs, right? Anything that did really well during the pandemic came off and corrected the most during the most recent sell-off, right? So think about uh, the pandemic winners, which was, you know, Chilliwack, Langley, Abbotsford, Mission, you know, all these sort of further out suburbs um, have taken the biggest drawdowns since. 
Um, and then as you get closer to the city of Vancouver, right, you know, didn't see as much of a price growth during the pandemic, specifically downtown Vancouver, and, and really didn't ultimately hasn't gone through much of a correction since 2022. Am I right to think that houses have a bigger uh, increase or decrease than, say, strata units, whether it's a townhouse or an apartment? Yeah, single family detach always tends to like lead the market. Um, so if you want to like get a decent sense of where the condo market is going, you can typically just look at where the detached market is because that's the, it always tends to lead. Um, so single family has, has sort of rebounded the most since um, since sort of the market correction of 2022 and 2023 saw a detached market come back uh, fairly strongly, less so for the condo market. So it'll be interesting to sort of see how 2024 shapes up. Are we seeing any real stories in this year's assessment when it comes to either regions or types of housing? Not really. I just think that, well, you know, one of the things that's going to be interesting is just to watch assessment values, I think, for next year, right? I mean, people need to realize is that BC assessment uh, assesses based on land being highest and best use, right? So we just heard the BC government come out with all these changes to zoning, uh, specifically in high transit-oriented uh, areas uh, near SkyTrain stations and bus stops. And so if, if you own a single-family house, that you know, per the new legislation, can now build, you know, 20-story condos. I mean, that is going to change the highest and best use of that single-family house. And you should see that reflected in your BC assessment value um, next year. And, and so what is that going to do for your potential tax bill? Uh, I think is, is is important for some homeowners to start considering. You know, they always say when it comes to investing in the stock market, you buy the rumor and you sell the news. Uh, the rumor has always been that SkyTrain lines and this type of uh, priority for government, for housing, would be coming into play. Well, the news is now that it has come into play. Is it really going to be a factor in the market when it comes to what the government is going to be doing in terms of density, especially around public transit? Uh, I don't think, I mean, it's, I think the reality is, is not, not much is going to get built here over the next 12 to 18 months. The reality is that all, the only thing that matters right now is, is interest rates. And I think if you look at the, the economic feasibility of these projects, I mean, the government can go ahead and raise as much land as they want, but you can't force the private sector to build. And because the end of the day is the private sector needs to make some money in order to put a shovel in the ground. And if you can't make any money, you don't build. And that's just the environment that we're in today. Uh, and I think the general public will find that hard to believe because I think there's a notion that developers just make money hand over fist. But there's a reason why a lot of these developers today are actually going into receivership because they're not making any money. Uh, and I think that's the environment that we're in. When you take rates from zero to, you know, 5%, that's a 500 basis point move in less than two years. That eliminates profitability in a lot of these projects. So we're not going to see a lot get built uh, over the next 12 to 24 months. Uh, but I think as we come out of that, the new zoning changes are going to, you know, unleash a lot of land supply. And so I do think that net-net, it's going to be a benefit for the province, but it's going to take 10-plus years to see that benefit. This week, I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jazz. You know, it was a theme in the 2023 provincial budget, and politicians, whether it is in B.C., the federal politicians or local politicians, have made affordable housing one of the top priorities going into 2024. 
in Vancouver, we certainly are anything but affordable. And in fact, affordable housing has been a pipe dream for many of us. But since we're talking with Steve Soretsky of the Soretsky Group and talking about real estate and assessments, got to mention or at least ask the most obvious question, is there ever going to be such a thing as affordable housing in the Vancouver area? Steve, what say you? <laughs> Uh, I'm a little bit naive in that, or maybe uh, skeptical that that we'll ever have, you know, affordable housing. I think the one thing I hear quite a bit um, on that front, though, is you know people say, well, you know, the stuff that we're building today, it's not affordable. So, and I always say, well, what's the alternative? Do you not build it? Do you just do you just leave it and not build anything then? Because the reality is, is like if you're building uh, a condo today, let's say whether it's a, I don't care if it's a rental apartment, wood frame, or or concrete. Uh, you know, your construction costs can be, be anywhere between 400 to 500 bucks a square foot just on the construction cost alone. So it's not including the cost of the land and it's not including the cost of the government fees. So the reality is you can't, based on that, unless the plumber or the electrician are going to take less money or less the cost of lumber and concrete and, and glass come down, I mean, it's not going to get any cheaper to actually build this stuff. So the cost of what it is, I think the reality is that when you add new supply, uh, you know, over time that supply becomes more affordable, right? You think about this, you know, uh, 1970s or 1980s apartment today, chances are that 1970s apartment is a lot cheaper than your 2010 apartment. Um, and so as, as the structures get older, they obviously depreciate over time. That's when they become quote unquote affordable. So it definitely isn't the new product. Um, so I think it's an important distinction for people to make. That is an important distinction, an interesting one, and one I haven't really thought about that much. But math is math, and when we talk about new construction, despite what politicians say, despite announcements of new housing projects, is it the market that uh, dictates, or is it uh, our political leadership? Well, I mean, approximately 30% of the the cost of new housing in, in, in B.C. is just government taxes and fees, right? So, I mean, that certainly plays a part in the overall cost. And the other cost is you know, global commodity markets, which we don't control either, right? Which is pricing out lumber, pricing out concrete, pricing out glass. You know, that's that's a market that we can't impact either. So um, these are costs that ultimately just get passed through to the end user. Um, and, and so, again, you know, affordable housing, you know, as we're seeing cost of living is becoming more expensive. Well, what happens? Well, the reality is, is the plumber needs a raise, the electrician wants a raise. Um, and, and again, that all gets passed through into the cost of construction. So I think this is just the reality is, is, is you know, building new housing is, is not going to be cheap and it's not going to be affordable. It's also desirability. We know that there are more people than there are homes. That's uh, that's a reality. But still, people do have a say in where they're going to live. And a lot of people want to live, I would imagine, pretty close to a transit line, like the extension going from Surrey into Langley or the one going out to UBC. Is that going to be more of a push factor or a pull factor? Because I've heard arguments on both. I always assume people would want to live close to it. But others are saying, you know what, if there is higher density in some of these areas, that's not the neighborhood I want. What do you think from a real estate or a real estate perspective, a realtor's perspective? What's your take on it? I think the reality is, is I think that, you know, 
transit-oriented, friendly cities are or what younger generations are gravitating towards, right? I mean, the cost of owning a car now, you know, with insurance, gas prices. I mean, even if you go electric, those cars aren't cheap. And so I just think that more and more people are looking for public transit. And obviously, being closer to that makes commuting a lot more friendly. So I think these suburban markets are still going to do really well. And then you'll get other parts of the market that are just, you know, are, are not, you know, are specifically built not to have, you know, transit and, and a lot of activity, right? I look at the neighborhood like, you know, a lot of the west side of Vancouver, Point Grey, you know, Dunbar. Like, it's 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 not, you know, people are Shaughnessy. People buy into these areas because they want to get away from it. Uh, and I think the highest and best use for that land is still a $7 million, $8 million single-family house. You know, the highest and best use uh, in those neighborhoods, for the most part, is, is again, still single-family. One size does not fit all in all cases. Steve, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk again in the year ahead. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, last week sure was nice if you got out for a bike ride or got a chance to go for a walk or even a hike in between the rain showers. Talk about balmy, not the weather you would expect for December. Certainly didn't have a lot of snow at the low-lying areas or anywhere in the province for that matter. But was it a record? Well, the answer is no, but it was quite warm and warm enough to put it into one of the warmest years in memory. In fact, Environment Canada says that the mean temperature recorded at the Vancouver International Airport for the month of December, 7 degrees Celsius, making it the third warmest December since 1896. So that, in fact, is really quite warm for this time of the year. Armel Castellan is an Environment Canada meteorologist, and we bring him in now to talk about just uh, just how warm it continues to be. But Armel, December, kind of freaky warm, eh? Yeah, Vancouver was very much part and parcel with the warm signal, so no surprise to see uh, some an anomaly, in this case at the International Airport, of 3.4 degrees. So that's, you know, 7.0 degrees was what was measured as the mean overall temperature in the whole month. We typically are down at 3.6. So that actually turns out to be the warmest December on record. Uh, The previous was, I guess, almost a tie in 1939. Uh, That's at the International Airport. Uh, Abbotsford, similar, 6.2 degrees. Typically, it's down at 2.9. So that's a 3.3 degree departure. Also, the warmest December on record and uh, those go back to 1896 and 1944, respectively. And there's a few other places on the island as well, uh, into the Caribou, that have also seen their warmest December on record. So a very strong signal, really from start to finish. Um, also a little bit wetter than normal, a yeah. few good atmospheric rivers, but nothing dramatic on that front. Mostly it was all about the warmth. Now, I live in Surrey, and I remember there was one morning about a week ago, maybe a little bit longer, woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning. It was 12 degrees outside at 3 in the morning. Absolutely. Uh, I would, I, I, I'm would. just about to calculate how many statistics uh, we saw. I believe that um, the, the daily statistics, you know, we saw a whole bunch of high maximum temperatures broken, but we saw almost double the high minimum temperatures overnight. So, yeah, those clouds sticking around, no evacuation of that of that of those temperatures over the overnight period. And so, yeah, you were dealing with 
temperatures that were in the teens, you know, on the island, on the Sunshine Coast, in Vancouver, uh, for many of the overnight periods, which is much, very high, much higher than normal. What do we, <laughs> what can we see or tell from this that may indicate what's coming up in the month ahead? Well, we have more details, obviously, in the shorter term forecast. And right now we're, we're in a bit of a rainy pattern, as you can see outside your window today. And that will last on and off here for the next few days. And then things start to cool off. So we actually are going to see, for the first time in a long time, temperatures that are much closer to seasonal, i.e., you know, six degrees over uh, daytime highs and one degree overnight lows, which is pretty typical for the, for the lower mainland, a little bit cooler still as you go deeper into the Fraser Valley. Um, and with that, we have, we're following, you know, a pulse there late Sunday into Monday where the freezing levels are probably just low enough. We might see a rainy, a rain-snow mix. That's the current thinking. We'll have to see whether it, it trends towards more liquid or more solid as we get closer to uh, the end of the weekend. Um, so there is a change in the, in the pattern for sure. This is going to spell some snow uh, in the mountains. Uh, for these uh, long-suffering resorts, uh, yeah. and and then be, and then beyond that, we do still expect that most of the rest of January and into February, March, we remain with relatively high probabilities above seasonal values, which uh, is unfortunate, but also very much conceptually tied to the El Nino phenomena that is currently occurring right across the planet. Now, if we do see the temperatures drop just enough that at the higher elevations we're getting some snow for the resorts you mentioned, is it going to be heavy snow? We cannot give you too much yet in terms of how much will fall, unfortunately. You know, there is a little bit of an earlier pulse there on, um, you know, even Thursday into Friday, again on Friday into Saturday and those should bring a few centimeters to the local hills, you know, the North Shore there. Seymour, uh, Grouse, Cypress, uh, Whistler likely will see something as well, as well as on the island. Um, and then, yeah, the event a little bit deeper into the, into the cool, it, things remain relatively dry until we get to Sunday night, and that's uh, maybe even partway into Monday. And so the models are starting to diverge a little bit before then. But uh, we'll be keeping a close eye on it. And uh, at this point, every little bit will help, uh, you know, places that have only uh, 15 centimeters in terms of a uh, snow base is, is really extremely low. So they're just on the verge of, of not operating at those levels. So this is definitely a, a, a good shift. Today is even one of those days where there's a little bit of snow in the Alpine as well. Armel, if we were to take a look at some of the good news coming out of this, is it found in the snowpack, meaning that are we really out of the woods in terms of flooding when it comes to the springtime? Well, the snowpack, uh, usually the higher the snowpack, the higher the potential of spring or freshet uh, flooding. So yeah, those things are definitely tied together. And then the big wild card is, do we get a sudden warm up at a certain point during the spring, usually uh, in, in the months of April or May and sometimes even into June? Uh, so that remains to be seen. But if the snowpack remains very low and the BC River Forecast Center will be issuing their snow bulletin on the 9th of January uh, the, for the first one of the season, so in, a, in about a week, uh, we will be able to get much more detail from that agency 
what, what the snowpack looks like up at elevation. I suspect it's very low. It's been low uh, at the start of December. I believe we were at 58% of normal then. So we'll see where it's at when we get to the, the start of January here and, uh, and then you know, have to follow that story along as it comes. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.